Please remain standing and grab your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 4 through 6. Hebrews 13, 4 to 6. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. This is the word of the living God. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Well, I want to speak to you today about contentment or temperance would be the, the classical virtue that we've been walking through. Contentment in marriage, sex, and money. So welcome to Redeeming Grace. <laughs> Topics you encounter uh, often in our culture, uh, but probably not often in the church, but we will discuss them uh, today. So I hope, um, I don't know how I'm going to finish that sentence. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I do want to just give a disclaimer. I, my comments will be uh, general. There's kids in the room, and, um, but uh, I, I do want to um, somewhat be uh, pointed, but not pointed enough where kids... Um, get weirded out. So, well, here we go, huh? Like us, these early Christians lived in a culture in which there was much confusion about marriage, sex, and material wealth. There were some in the church at Ephesus who forbid marriage. So, 1 Timothy 4.3, uh, maybe an early set of Gnosticism, the idea that um, uh, physical reality, the body even, was, uh, was bad or irrelevant and uh, unnecessary. So there were some in the church at Ephesus who were forbidding uh, marriage. On the other hand, there were those in the Corinthian church embroiled in sexual activity. Uh, adulterers, homosexuality, the sexual immoral. We're not going to go into the detail in the the Corinthians, but Paul said and reminds them, and he reminds us that their prior sexual deviations did not define them. He says they've been washed. Such were some of you, Paul said, but you were washed and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were new people, no longer identified with their sexual deviations. So all to say in the New Testament, very briefly, there was, like today, much confusion and abuse regarding marriage, sex, and money. I do want to remind you, as we get going in this text this morning, that we're on the topic of Christian virtue. So there was a switch from chapter 12 to chapter 13. We were brought to heavenly Zion in chapter 12, and he said, you've been brought to Jesus and to the gospel and everything that he is for you in the gospel. And then we have chapter 13 when it talks about Christian virtue. Last week was the virtue of love. Augustine said that is the primary virtue, the virtue by which uh, all other virtues flow. And then in chapter or in verses four to six, he begins with the virtue of temperance, 
which I think on your liturgy, uh, these are the four, the four ladies on your liturgy, by the way. These are the four cardinal virtues um, that, that were classically identified. I don't know which one was uh, temperance, though, so uh, there they are. So we're going to talk about contentment or temperance today. A couple of um, statements regarding what a virtue is, okay? So these were shared last week, but just a reminder, Joe Rigney Uh, says virtue is, quote, the habitual exercises and inclinations of the heart for good things. The habitual exercises and inclinations of the heart for good things. So they situate virtue in the heart, first and foremost. Scott Swain, again, says the virtues, biblically understood, I love this, are not merely subjective attitudes or emotions. So, They're not just um, willy-nilly in our hearts. They constitute qualities of character, and you can hopefully hear that from 2 Peter 2. Make these qualities of yours, make uh, make them increasing, right? So they constitute qualities of character that rightly orient us toward objective realities, namely God and all things in God. And Swain says the virtues, in other words, this is key, The virtues flow from the gospel, so they're not manufactured within us, by us. They flow from the gospel by which we are reformed and renewed in the image of God for lives that glorify God and benefit our neighbors. So, uh, in other words, the virtues are divine graces that God the Spirit gives to us in the gospel purchased for us by Christ, uh, and our lives by Christ's aid are renewed and reformed into the image of God that glorify God and benefit our neighbors. That's a mouthful, but that's what virtues are. So here we go, Um, cultivating contentment in marriage and sex, verse 4, all right? Point number one, cultivating contentment in marriage and sex. Let verse four, look at, the Bi- look at your Bibles, please. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Let's begin with the definition of terms, shall we? What is marriage? What a question for today, huh? What is, what is marriage? Well, here's a short, brief statement. If you're taking notes... Perhaps this is helpful. Marriage is a lifelong sacred bond between a man and a woman instituted by God in order to show the relationship between Christ and His church. Basic, but I think it captures what marriage is. I'll read it again. A lifelong sacred bond or a covenant between a man and a woman instituted by God in the purpose that he created marriage was to show the relationship between Christ and his church. So marriage is not just something on earth for its own sake. Marriage is to display and show what God and Christ has done for his people, which is why it is so sacred, which is why it is a covenant. There are three features to this covenant of marriage, okay? Three. One, mutual obligations. 
Don't you, wo- don't you love the word obligations? <laughs> Lifelong faithfulness in biblically established gender roles. Lifelong faithfulness in biblically established gender roles. So I'm trying to unpack the definition now, okay? The husband, as your obligation, is to love your wife as Christ loves the church. What does it mean to love your wife as Christ loves the church? Well, according to Ephesians 5, men, you are to give yourself to her. You are to give yourself to her. And you are to nourish your wife. And you are to cherish your wife. You are to give yourself to her. You are to nourish her in the word, to feed her with the gospel and with the word of God. And you are to cherish her. You are to say, that's my bride. I love her. She means the world to me. The wife is to honor her husband. What does that mean? The wife is to love her husband and to submit to his loving headship. The wife is to say, to look at her husband and say, that's my man. And I love him. And I submit to his authority and his headship. Those are the mutual obligations. Secondly, there are promises of blessings upon fulfillment. When you seek to pattern your marriage along this definition And along these obligations, there are blessings. There is loving companionship. I'll get to this in just a moment. But there is loving companionship. Second, there is sexual union. And third, there are, what do you know, children. Loving companionship, sexual union, and children. These are the blessings of uh, fulfillment as you give yourself to these obligations. And third, the the third feature of this definition of marriage or the sacred bond is there are consequences. There are consequences for breaking the sacred bond. Look at your text. God says um, that the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. There's guilt. If you break this covenant, there's There's shame. There's family ruin and there's poverty. So we're not talking about marriage in a societal invention that our our culture wants to define it, uh, whereas marriage can be redefined in such a way that to meet your ever-increasing need. Uh, No, we're, we're defining marriage as God defines it in His Word. And that is the most beautiful definition of marriage. To see it as this display of the gospel and to love your wife as Christ loves the church and to love your husband and to honor him as the head of your home. The text says in verse 4, let's just, so beyond the definition now, let's get to the text. Let the marriage, or let marriage be held in honor among all. What What does that mean? Well, This is going to be harder than I thought. 
The term uh, held in honor is placed first in the Greek. No, I'm not crying because of Greek. Um, <laughs> I love Greek, but not that much. Um, so the Greek says, honoring marriage among all. So it, it places the word honor in front so that you would get the emphasis of the point of the verse. So you are to highly esteem marriage. That's the sense here. You are to highly prize marriage. You are to highly value your marriage. You are to highly respect it. And you are to highly treasure your marriage. You are not to think of your marriage as something uh, indifferent. You are not to treat it lightly. You are not to obviously treat it with disrespect. And the text says that the marriage is to be held among or in honor among all. So everybody in the church, uh, unmarried, singled, widowed, among all, marriage is to be displayed and honored for the sake of Christ and the glory of God. The state it too has a vested interest in the honoring of marriage. Marriage is the very foundation for a healthy society. It's no wonder then that as our culture degradates marriage, there also is hand in hand a degradation in society. You can't cut the branch you're sitting on. can't cut it off and say, why, I'm on the ground. <laughs> but that's what our society is doing in marriage. Marriage is that very institution upon which a society is built. If you destroy this institution, state, you will destroy society. So it's to be honored among all. And then he says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think he's specific for a reason. He's calling you to preserve the sexual integrity of your marriage. Preserve the sexual integrity of your marriage. Any sexual activity outside of marriage, pornography, self-gratification, flirting, uh, kissing, sexual intercourse, these defile the marriage bed. They ruin your marriage. Uh, Jim Neuheiser, he's a, he's a Christian counselor. He's an associate professor at RTS, which is Reformed Theological Seminary. He says, in one of my earliest counseling cases, I met a woman who had an affair and left her dull Christian husband for the exciting guy she met at work. Once she and her lover married, however, the relationship began to fall apart in every way. She said, and he's quoting her now, I can't understand how when we were having the affair, we couldn't keep our hands off of each other. 
We were like a wild man and a woman. But now that we are married, we can't stand each other. She was asking me, Neuheiser says, she wanted to know whether she could go back to her dull former husband. Adultery is just one expression of defiling the marriage or pornography or any other form. There is the possibility of defiling your marriage even with your spouse, forcing him or her. Uh, you'd be surprised how often uh, ministers hear of these things. Uh, forcing your spouse to do uh, sexual activities that are unnatural, harmful, or immodest. These are usually fueled by pornography and sexual idolatry. Um, these two defile the marriage. Uh, let the marriage bed be held in honor. That's what it looks like to... Uh, to not honor marriage. What does it look like to keep it holy? Let me just make a couple of comments and we'll move on. God created sex to be enjoyed in one place and only one place, and that is marriage. As husband and wife, and if you've tuned out, please come back to me. As husband and wife share life together and build an ever-deepening friendship, which, by the way, is the foundation to um, sexual design, is your friendship. Their sexual union comes to mean more and more. In this type of relationship, there's not the pressure to perform a certain sexual activity or to earn the devotion of the other. Uh, turn to Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 16. Uh, Song of Solomon is right before the book of Isaiah. I love uh, the bride's words to her husband here. I think this book is most is better interpreted as Christ and the church, but on a, on a human level, it is about a marriage. Look at some of the language that she uses to talk about her husband. Song of Solomon 5:16, "His mouth is most sweet." All right. So his mouth. Is, is sweet to her. I take that to mean that his speech to his wife is gentle. It's loving. It's beautiful. It's soft. And she loves it. His mouth is most sweet. She can't wait to Lay a kiss on him, you know? And he is altogether desirable. She, she loves her husband. She wants her husband. 
because he speaks this way and because he is this way in speech and in tone, in body, emotionally, physical, she she loves him. He is altogether desirable. And then she says, this is my beloved. Right? This is my beloved right there. And then what does she say? And this is my friend. That loving companionship is the backbone to a healthy marriage. Where husband and wife love one another, yes, sexually, in the marriage bed, but also there's beyond that. There is this companionship, there is this friendship that goes beyond their sexual union. Well, that's all I have to say about cultivating contentment in marriage and sexuality. I pray, church, I pray you take the words of Scripture over the words of culture in this area and you would turn your devotion to your spouse in all love and all faithfulness sexually and also in companionship. Okay, secondly, cultivating contentment with money. Back to Hebrews chapter 13. I don't know how the author of Hebrews change, you know, just changes on a dime, but he does. So uh, chapter verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. We have two imperatives that reinforce each other. The first is negative. Keep your life free from the love of money. So don't fall in love with stuff. Okay, and the second is positive. Be content with what you have. So have a sweet, quiet frame of spirit about your present condition. Whatever you have or whatever you don't have, have a sweet, quiet, gentle disposition about your current condition. So let's address this first exhortation first. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. The love of money and the danger of it. Yes, it is a gift, but the danger of it as well is a regular theme in the Bible. So we're going to take a couple of minutes here to look at a couple of scriptures. Psalm 52, 7. Psalm 52, 7. Psalm 52, 7. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. So loving money, according to Psalm 52, verse 7, and trusting God do not mix. You cannot make money a refuge and God a refuge. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trust in the abundance of his riches. You can't do both. You have one or the other. 2 Timothy 3, 1, 2, and 8. 2 Timothy 1, 2, and 8. So 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self and lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Drop down to verse um, 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. So loving money is a mark of walking the broad road of being disqualified regarding the faith. Luke 18, 18 to 23. Luke 18, 18 to 23. The rich young ruler, Luke 18, Verse 18, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good question. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he says, all these I have kept from my youth. (laughs) And Jesus says, oh, really? When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. By the way, this man's rich. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. That man walks away. Not because he has riches. You understand that? That's not the problem. He walks away because his riches had him. That's the problem. He was not content. Hebrews 10, verse 32. Hebrews 10, verse 32 and 34. The very context of our text today. Hebrews 10, 32. But recall the former days when you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So remember those former days? You had compassion on those in prison And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So in some cases, as it was for these Christians in former days, faith in Christ will cost you material wealth. Money makes a terrible Refuge. And that is why the author of Hebrews in chapter 13 13 says, keep your life free 
from the love of money. Do not set your heart and let it rest on money. It cannot give you what you want, security, and value. Do you remember that parable in Luke 12 where that guy has all the stuff in the world, in the world and he says, man, what am I going to do here? I think I should build b- bigger barns, store more stuff. I have ample goods. And God says, you fool. Tonight, your very life could be required of you. Don't make money a refuge. Psalm 62, verse 7. Trust in God at all times, O people. God is a refuge for us. The second second exhortation says, Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So his argument is straightforward. Instead of loving money, you need to be content. Content means to be uh, satisfied. Uh, Literally, the verb means to be enough, be satisfied. Look at what you have and say, that is enough from the Lord. That is enough. Jeremiah Burroughs, English Puritan, wrote a whole book on this subject, which is fantastic. That's what Puritans did. They took a word and they said, I'm going to write a book on it. In the rare jewel of Christian contentment, he defines contentment as this. I love this definition. He says, contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise dealing or in God's wise, sorry, and fatherly disposal of every condition. So notice where Burroughs situates contentment. Contentment rests in the heart, in the frame of spirit. And he says it's that that quiet, loving reception of the providence and sovereignty of God in your life. And once you have that quiet frame of spirit, then you will rest in what he does in your life. And Burroughs says contentment is opposed to a few things. It is opposed to distracting, heart-consuming cares. Fear the future. It is opposed to murmuring and fretting. It is opposed to wrongful anxiety. What am I going to do if this happens? What am I going to do if that happens? Burroughs says, contentment doesn't worry and argue like that. It's opposed to sinking discouragements, Burroughs says. When things don't go according to expectation, Burroughs says, miracles fall as easily from God's hands as daily bread. Why would you worry? God would have us depend on him, though we do not see how the thing may be brought about. So contentment rests in the soul. And finally, he says, uh, contentment is opposed to sinful thinking and living. Uh, Taking your life into your own hands. Adam in paradise. 
He had it all. But I got to have that fruit. Ahab on the throne, the king of Israel, had it all. But you know, there's a field down there that I want. And one guy's little lamb. And I got to have it. Biblical contentment is content with what God has given you in your lot. And did you notice the reason? Notice the reason we ought to be content. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The Lord is my help where I will not fear what can man do to me. So contentment rests upon God's promise to never leave you. That's what contentment rests upon. The presence of God in your life. In fact, there are five negatives to confirm that promise. Does anyone have a Greek Bible in here? Come on, Caitlin. All righty. No one. And then just trust me. The ESV has one. Right? I will never, there's the negative, leave you. There are five in the Greek text. So, it reads like this. I will never, no, never, no, never leave you or forsake you. The hymn has it right that we just sung. I will never, no, never, no, never leave you. The repetition confirms the promise. Do you get it? Do you trust it? How do you know he won't leave you? I've said it five times, God says. Not just once. Five times over. God promises to be with you and to help you in your every need. If we have need and we do, His presence and power are committed to provide. You take those five negatives in times of sorrow and doubt and pain and you shove them in your soul. That's where they must must rest. God will never, no, never, no, never leave you. So let me make a final comments on contentment because this is a difficult grace to exercise. Two final comments and I'll be done. Number one, Christian contentment is rooted in what the Bible defines as a meaningful life, not what the world defines as a meaningful life. Contentment 
is rooted in what the Bible defines as a meaningful life. The Bible teaches that the essence of a fulfilling life is not to be found in the possession of material things. Jesus said one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. The meaningful life Jesus teaches is found in a right relationship with God. If you seek contentment, beloved, in the things of this world, you seek in vain. If you place your heart upon the treasures of this world, the foundation of your contentment will be shaken to pieces by the sovereign power of God's providence. Do you understand that? If it rests on this earth, it will be shaken to pieces by your God. And he does it so that you would not have your contentment here. And instead in Mount Zion, you are self-deceived, church, if you think you can rest in the things you possess. Even if in God's providence he allows you to possess all that your heart desires. And some of you and I have it. When he calls for your soul in death, the foundation of your contentment will be ripped from under you. And you will face the reality of the world to come. A meaningful life and Christian contentment are rooted in the reality that even if we have nothing of the world's good in our Lord, we possess everything. Everything. 2 Corinthians 6.10 Number two. Christian contentment is is rooted in the recognition of proper priorities. If you are convinced that spiritual prosperity is more important than material prosperity and that the world to come is more important than this present world, then you will be content with your current material circumstances. That doesn't mean you give up on hard work. All right? Or what John Owen called honest industry. Work hard for the glory of God as a way to love your neighbor and as a way to love God, just not to gain the world. Just not to gain the world. You must prioritize spiritual riches over material wealth lest you build your life in contentment on castles of sand. Last, last word. I'll leave you with this. Seventy years ago, On the last Saturday morning in January, the MV Princess Victoria left the coast of southwest Scotland. She was heading for Ireland with 179 people on board, but she never arrived. In the worst storm anyone could ever remember, the flawed design of the ship meant that the car deck was flooded as ferocious waves pounded against her. The captain and the ship's officers all went down with the ship. 
135 perished and only 44 survived. The Princess Victoria is known as the Titanic of its generation. Have you heard of this story? Anybody? One has. On board that day was a woman known as the Lady in the Fur Coat. What a name to be remembered by, huh? As the ship was sinking, she was running around, clutching her bags. Someone told her to forget about them, but she replied, quote, This is all the money I have in the world. This is all the money I have in the world. She was later seen dead in the water, still tightly clutching those bags. It's a graphic illustration of the fact that we brought nothing into this world. <laughs> and we're not going to take anything out. Nothing. First Timothy 6, 7. In contrast to the lady in the fur coat, there was a woman named Nancy Bryson. Uh, she was a missionary who has been called, quote, the heroine of the Princess Victoria. According to her daughter, she was one of the bravest women on board, whispering words of comfort to other passengers and led them in singing a hymn. She tried to help a three-year-old child into one of the lifeboats, but failed to do so. And she drowned going underwater herself in the process. You hear about that stuff and you think, that's unbelievable. There's a poem written in Nancy Bryson's memory. I just want to read a few lines and I'll be done. The last few hours of her life were gladly given o'er in bringing consolation to hearts now sad and sore. She spoke of Jesus and his love and all his power to save. She told the tale of heaven and home and life beyond the grave. As Nancy Bryson told the tale of Jesus' wondrous love, we know that many pass that day into the home above, where there is no more sorrow, no parting, and no sea, upon whose shore no storm will beat through eternity. Though Nancy Bryson has passed on, tis true, she speaketh still. Her fame has gone through all the world and surely ever will. God had her there on purpose upon that ship that day to point the soul to Jesus, the true and living way. Don't let your riches, and you have them, drag you to hell. Throw yourself on Christ who was rich yet for our sakes became poor. Be content and satisfied in Him and let God take care of the rest. Let God take care of the rest. Let's pray. Our great God, um, we're thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ.
And we ask that our hearts would be satisfied in Him. As we walk this pilgrim life, give us this quiet, sweet, gracious frame of spirit to submit to everything you do in our lives. Oh, this life is a vapor. (laughs) Oh, this life is a vapor. And we can't wait to get home with you where true wealth and riches abound forever. (laughs) We look forward to seeing you face to face, oh God. That's our joy. Keep us content, we pray. Amen.